the kinds of processes that you use in IEW to help kids strategize and break down ideas are absolutely essential for learning to write. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So last week, Andrew and I chatted with doctors Brock and Fernet, ID, who are experts in this area of dyslexia, and they were just so wonderful, and we just enjoyed our conversation so much that we didn't even stop them until we ended the podcast last week. So here we are picking up the rest of that conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as we do. Well, and earlier, Brock, you had mentioned one of the challenges with a dyslexic child is these more complex processes are more difficult. And wow, what is more complex than writing, coming up with an idea, and then being able to translate it onto the page with the correct spelling in, you know, according to some grammatic structure that has been dictated by the language that you speak. Oh, my goodness, you know. (laughs) So I do know that that's what we tried to do with IEW is break it down. Well, it's even it's even more complex than that uh, in that the more an individual child is geared to thinking of complex stories, so essentially the more imaginative and the more verbally talented that child is, the more difficult the problems are. So when we were testing individual students with comprehensive uh, batteries, the you know an achievement test and an, and an IQ test in our clinical practice, and we looked at a series of about 200 dyslexic students. We found that if you segregated those kids by IQ uh, into groups or cohorts, that in every single category that was tested, the the scores would basically vary with IQ, so your performance would get better the higher your IQ was, and it'd be a little worse if your IQ was was lower, with the exception of writing uh, essays or stories. When we looked at essay and story writing, the higher your IQ was beyond a certain point, so when you got into the high gifted range, it actually, your performance actually deteriorated uh, at, at younger ages, so at middle school and below in particular your performance was likely to be worse than it was for kids with uh, with sort of a, a mildly elevated or average uh, even IQ. And that was because these kids were trying to do so much uh, with a system that just was not geared towards being able to deal with the complex ideas that they wanted to describe. So the kinds of processes that you use in IEW to help kids strategize and break down ideas are absolutely essential for learning to write for kids that are especially, uh, you know, these homeschooled kids that are super bright. Yeah, I've sometimes um, jokingly in a class said, uh, the problem isn't that 
this is hard for you. The problem is your brain is so much faster than your hand. <laughs> and uh, it's good. that's good. Who wants a brain slower than your hands? So I think, you know, approaching it with some levity, but then reassuring them that, yes, it's what's very complex. One of the things that I feel schools have kind of pushed and uh, maybe even pushed on to parents to some degree is this idea that if you're not doing it all by yourself, then you're not learning. You're not accomplishing the goal, that somehow uh, the child must be cut off from sources of help in order to prove that they are learning something. And I see this as being you know, very destructive and in a way completely counter to the way the world works. I mean, none of us work in isolation. Uh, we're always collaborating and capitalizing on each other's strengths and bringing ideas together. Do you find that there are schools or, or um, ways in which we can help parents realize that it's okay to help the kids as much as they need? Uh, things you mentioned, such as let them dictate the story. Um, if they can't think of the word, give them a couple options. Uh, assist them. Be their human dictionary. All of those things that in kind of a traditional, more rigid classroom setting would look like cheating, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there there has been a real suspicion of, about the use of technology, that it would become a crutch that would prevent uh, students from, from ever developing independence. And in our experience, that's exactly the wrong way to look at it. And that's both in our experiences, you know, working in the educational field and just in the medical field more broadly. Um, you know, anybody who's worked in any kind of rehabilitative service knows that the progression back to complete independence always involves a period of dependency and a period where you need help and you need assistive devices. And this is this is no different than any of those other situations. So the the key at the early stages is to offload that that central core of working memory that the child has to be able to coordinate all the different activities that go into something as complex as writing so that they can use as much of their working memory as possible to uh, to bring all these things and coordinate all these things and bring them together. And the way that you do that is by putting the individual pieces off separately so that you can do them one at a time, so that you can do them with some assistance, and then you coordinate and bring them all together in more and more complex ways. So uh, technology plays an absolutely essential role in building ultimate independence for these students. Totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. And I would say, too, we've had the advantage of seeing kids that we saw at ages six and seven grow up to be in their 20s now and, you know, and, and see that beautiful burst that comes on because they were never denied access to great literature or, or high ideas and things like that. They were able to dictate when they needed to. They were able to type when they needed to. And then they put it all together when they're young adults. And then they're unstoppable. So it's it's a very narrow field if, if people are saying, gee, you can't get to the second grade or third grade if you can't fill in the blank, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and that's just, it's a very, very narrow and, and short-sighted view. And so, you know, parents, teachers should really be encouraged uh, that most 
most people will do as much as they can with the tools that they have. And, you know, and, and eventually you may not need some of the support. Some people may always prefer dictating. There's no problem with that. Or some people may always prefer typing, you know, and, uh, and just seeing the big picture on things like that will be really the best for these young people. Yes, I think uh, perhaps you've thought, I'm sure you've thought this as I've thought it, which is maybe God gave me the children I have so that I could understand and help other parents um, by telling stories about my children. (laughs) Um, I wonder, I would like to touch a little bit on the other book, uh, The Mislabeled Child, Uh, How Understanding Your Child's Unique Learning Style Can Open the Door to Success. This idea of labeling is always something that is stressful for parents. They, They, on one side, want a label, but on the other side, they don't want a label. I think they want it so they can know something about what they're frustrated about. But on the other hand, they're afraid of a label because then that leads down a path where they may not want to go. For example you know, ADHD and Ritalin or something. So my first question about this labeling is, could you clarify for for me and for uh, I think a lot of people, what is the actual definitional difference between dyslexia and dysgraphia? So dyslexia is really a disorder of, uh, you know, the way it's officially defined is disorder of reading, basically. And uh, uh, dysgraphia is disorder of written expression, and those those are categories that are basically created for administrative purposes to help you know people who are have to put things in file cabinets and boxes and, and <laughs> uh, you know different columns on a spreadsheet. But in reality, in practical experience, many of the same kinds of issues in the way that, that brains are wired and that, um, and that people process information that lead to one will lead to the other as well. So there's not a rigid watertight uh, difference between them. It's not like you have one issue with your brain that causes dyslexia and another issue with your brain that causes dysgraphia. Uh, it's that uh, the, the skills of reading and spelling have certain features and that if if your brain shows different processing bents or you know characteristics you're going to be vulnerable to difference to difficulties with decoding and spelling on the one hand or with you know forming your letters or remembering the rules for punctuation or or uh, uh, grammar or being able to handle all those things uh, you know at the same time and uh, so it's important in, you know in terms of the mislabeling um, the the original title that we had on the on the proposal for that book was Beyond Behavior, and it was basically, you know, the, the two titles actually point to what our main concern was, which was that, you know, at the time that we ori- originally wrote that book, there was a lot of emphasis on developing checklists uh, to create sort of automatic responses. So if you engage in a certain number of behaviors, then you qualified for a diagnosis of ADHD or you qualified for a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And we would do, you know, why, uh, you know, to you or for you or whatever. 
And the problem that we really had with that was that behavior is a really complex uh, phenomenon and it is caught, it can be caused by lots of different things. You know, as physicians, if somebody came into our office with a limp, we didn't just assume that there was a problem with their leg. They could have had a problem in their spinal column. They could have had a problem in their brain. You know, they could have had a problem with their shoe. And, and <laughs> it was the same thing with, we, we just had the same negative reaction to the way people were approaching uh, behavioral issues with children. Well, some children who were acting up in class uh, maybe did have problems with attention. Other kids were bored. Uh, other kids had auditory problems and they couldn't understand what was going on and that made them anxious. You know, other kids had issues going on at home that were uh, trans, uh, transferring into the classroom. So we, we really just dislike this idea that you can look uh, superficially at behaviors and come up with an explanation, a diagnosis, and a, a, recommend, a recommended set of responses to that. And, uh, you know, the understanding a child and the reason that they're doing the things that they're doing and why they're struggling and why they're succeeding is much more complicated uh, than just looking at behavior. That is, I think, so true. And, you know, I meet parents who, again, will say, well, I think my child, fill in the blank, do you think I should get him tested? And, you know, my response is, well, I I'm not an expert. I'm, I can't tell you that. But what I do notice is that a lot of times people who will provide you with a label for a problem have no help for you in dealing with that problem. And uh, that's very frustrating, I think, to parents. So uh, you have a clinic in Seattle. You see you see families regularly? Uh, that uh, That's a past tense uh, now at this point in our career. So we, we retired we, from the clinic. We retired from clinical operations to run the nonprofit and then also to develop the screener. So we, but we did, uh, we did have a clinic here where we saw kids for a period of about uh, 15 years. What I would say also is that, that good, a good test, I think, you know, we, I think we believe that the screening app is is a good screener. It gives you tools. I, I found actually the testing for our students, and we we probably had um, certain advantages because we we knew other professionals and we knew where to find them. That um, that that actually a good assessment can give you more tools for no, especially if you're a homeschooling parent to to figure out how to design their education. So I, there was a, a, you know, there was a, a neurology saying diagnose and adios. Obviously, there's a problem if you label and then say goodbye, you know. But I, the, you know, there are there are good assessments out there. There are also good tools. Sometimes there'll be good books where you start recognizing things in your students and realize, oh, you know what, this this might really help, you know. So I I, I would say that the profession as a whole probably does need some work to give more practical information once they actually spend the hours assessing a student, but that it is possible to have really uh, valuable information at that point in time, you know, just helping you know uh, what might really be the thing to help work on most. Now, Frenette, you have an online course. Um, I'm sure you're both involved, but you're listed as the instructor of record, I believe, uh, and this course is uh, available to anyone. I believe teachers can get clock hours. You can do it through 
a university to get graduate credits. Could you tell us just uh, a little bit about the scope of that course and who might most benefit from it? So this was uh, this was this is a dyslexia for teachers class, and it's meant for general education teachers who may know about teaching in general, but may not know much about dyslexia. And so it's meant to be kind of an um, a, a introduction to dyslexia, but also to have practical classroom strategies. It is available for graduate student credits too. So for uh, for public school teachers, for instance, it can be used to advance your salary and, and get um, credits toward a master's degree. Although it's a, a, a survey introducing dyslexia, it's also intended to have a lot of practical information, videos that show uh, examples of good practices, you know, evaluation of writing samples um, and uh, reading errors, things like that. I think that in the future we are we also are planning a, a course for tutors and um, potentially homeschooling parents as well. But right now it's just the course at Dyslexic Advantage and the same course for graduate student credits is run through Seattle Pacific University. Wonderful. And and so it is for school teachers, but at at the moment anyone could sign up and do this and it's an online course with some quizzes or tests or writing yeah, or... and then writing samples and things like that yeah it's a three three quarter credit course so that's that's an offering through dyslexicadvantage.org not to be confused with your book the dyslexic advantage so so what other things have you got going on at dyslexic advantage at your nonprofit organization? So besides the writing awards, uh, another big program of ours are the college scholarships. And we'll be giving away uh, at a minimum 200, sorry, 20 college scholarships this year where uh, there's no minimum GPA required. We're looking for other strengths of the students. And that's for U.S. uh, attending students. It could be two-year as well as four-year colleges. And, uh, and we love that program. Um, another program is the STEM Ingenuity Awards, where it's uh, kind of STEM STEAM, so it includes designing. Again, we wanted to nurture these. Sometimes they're like baby baby strengths because kids are so busy in their school years focusing on you know, the basics of reading, writing, and math that we wanted to have some outlet for, for kids to explore their abilities and and coming up with ideas for science projects and carry on experiments and stuff like that. So that's, that's been a fun project for us too. Ages are uh, seven to 18. Wonderful. It sounds like you've got a lot uh, going on there and we appreciate all of this information. And again, uh, I personally can highly recommend the Dyslexic Advantage book as uh, being very encouraging. I remember one time my son was just particularly frustrated and I was particularly frustrated as can happen. And I finally just said, you know what? You're just born in the wrong time and place. (laughs) If you'd been like born on a South Pacific island 150 years ago, you'd be the smartest, strongest, best looking, fastest kid on the whole island. You just happen to be born in a world where we we almost make reading a god. It's mm-hmm. almost an idolatry. If if you can't read, the whole world is closed to you. And um, he kind of laughed and said, yeah, well, you weren't there. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, I think it is encouraging for, for all of us to have access to the stories of your son who's grown up, my son who's grown up, other 
uh, people who grew up dyslexic and are doing awesome things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie, your son, too. He's, yep. He's my ADHD kid. Yeah. Now he's our super hyperactive video editor who yes. does who works at a stand-up desk and yeah. loves it. <laughs> yeah. Any um, any last thoughts, uh, doctors? ID uh, for our listeners who include both homeschool uh, parents and also school teachers. Well, um, we do have a free monthly newsletter that people they just go to our website dyslexicadvantage.org and they can uh, at the pop-up they can go ahead and put their email address and they'll get that sent to their box. And, um, and explore, we have a, a whole library of articles and, uh, and really consider, you know, I think it'd be great to have more homeschooling. We always have homeschoolers win, you know, everything, writing awards, STEAM, STEM awards, you know, and college scholarships. So take a look at our, our student programs as well, because uh, we certainly have a heart for homeschoolers and, and, uh, and it's a great way to you know, to, to nurture these gifts. And I'm sure if anyone wanted to financially support your organization, they could learn how to do that as well. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Doctor, do you want to say something? Uh, my my takeaway message is, as we've done this now for, for a couple of decades, and we've been able to follow a lot of the same people that we've worked with, is, is really just always time is on your side. And I think the those early years, Andrew, that you described with your son, where he was spinning in place and not making progress, the, the most important thing for parents to remember is the importance of just keeping your child's courage and confidence and optimism in the future, some vision for their future alive during those times, because it's only the students who lose heart and quit trying before the the benefits really kick in that uh, that are never able to take advantage of the really positive sides of being a different uh, kind of thinker and learner because those come on uh, later in time. So uh, time time really is on your side in this circumstance. Wow. I don't know what else I could possibly say to land this plane. Thank you so much, especially for those last few comments there. And we will definitely be looking forward to seeing what great outcomes come out of your organization. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>